0: Hello welcome to another episode. Uh, today we have Elijah Magnier with us. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, Elijah is a veteran war zone correspondent. He's a political analyst with over 35 years of experience covering the Middle East and North Africa. Um, she specializes in real-time reporting of politics, uh, strategic and military planning, terrorism and counterterrorism. Welcome Elijah. Thank you so much for being with, here with us.
1: Thanks for having me, it's great to be with you.
0: Thank you, so I wanted to jump right in uh, to uh, the first question here. Obviously on Friday we had um, the Hezbollah leader, Nasrallah, hold his speech. He uh, addressed his followers on the conflict um, right now unfolding in Palestine, Israel. And of course, a lot of people had expected him to reveal the next move, uh, which he didn't. He did condemn the attacks. He um, you know, asserted that the operation was in fact independent of Iran. Um, he blamed the US for the war in Gaza. And he uh, confirmed that Hezbollah had in fact been engaged since October 8th, not October 7th. And then Finally, he called on other countries um, or Arab countries to cut off oil and gas and so on. So I really wanted to hear kind of based on that speech, what impact his statement had on all regional dynamics.
1: Well, you rightly said people raised their expectations because they really didn't understand what Hezbollah was doing uh, from the 8th of October, because what uh, has been done and because rightly people don't follow what hezbollah is doing they don't understand the dynamic they don't understand the behavior the special language that hezbollah used with the Israelis, etc so on the 8th of october what happened is something that never happened before hezbollah took the initiative of bombarding an israeli position on the radar him that is within the lebanese occupied territory of the Shuba Farm and the Khershuba Hills. This is why, because Hezbollah took the initiative and started to engage the Israelis along the 100 to the 120 kilometers borders, Hezbollah attracted a third of the Israeli army, which means that Hezbollah pulled to itself third of the Israeli army that supposedly would have been engaged in Gaza surrounding the entire strip and occupying already, not only the city of Gaza, but this strip in the north and in the south. That's a major achievement by doing so. It means Hezbollah is already in a war. What Hezbollah is not, is to divert the attention from the Palestinian cause, is for people and for countries around the world to say, this is a war between Iran and Israel, because when Hezbollah will start attacking Israel, there is no longer the, the Palestinian cause that has been considered as the forgotten cause since 1948, 1973, 1991, the Oslo Agreement, 1992, when the 2 states peace agreement was signed with the Americans that dramatically failed in their diplomatic effort to establish two states for the Palestinians. Now, because of all that, and also because Hezbollah doesn't need to start attracting the war to Lebanon and um, start fighting with the Israelis without a real reason, because the reason now Hezbollah has is it's trying to defend this territory and is engaged in a battle along the occupied uh, Lebanese territory. Because there are so many differences between the Israelis and the Lebanese over the borders, there is a disputed border. There is a blue line, and there are United Nations there. When the Israelis started to bomb uh, the uh, fields and the, uh, um, uh, the uh, beyond the two kilometers borders, then Hezbollah enlarged to five kilometers, and this is where the exchange happened. Now, t- uh, the other point is. Most of the Arab population around the world, we're talking about 1.3 to 1.5 billion people, expect Lebanon with a million and a half Shia, or 2 million, to start a war against Israel, and they're not asking their government, first, to stop normalizing with Israel, second, to do something in support of the Palestinians. We're not talking here about Shia and Sunni. We're talking about... You have the entire Arab population that is not lifting a finger apart from uh, some countries like Kuwait, Qatar, uh, Iraq, who are expressing solidarity and who are standing against Israel and fighting in their way by providing a good media coverage, by uh, taking a taking uh, stand against the Israelis like uh, the uh, Kuwaitis. However, nobody opened a, f- a fire against the Israelis. They don't have borders, although Egypt and Jordan have borders with Israel. And the only thing that Egypt did is said, I don't want them in the Sinai Desert. You take them to the Negev and keep them there. He didn't say, as 120 million people with my army and my way in the peace process, I open the uh, Rafah border, that is the Egyptian border, and allow humanitarian support to go to Gaza. Nobody is asking from the Egyptians to send an army, but just to open the door for the humanitarian aid. So what Nusrallah said is he sent a direct threat to the Americans because from the day one, the Americans came, Joe Biden came to see Netanyahu and said, we send in carriers to the Middle East. So Hezbollah said, "Well, we have adequate weapons to the Americans if they get involved, and we remind you that we have already defeated you 1982 by bombing the Marines, by bombing the American embassy. Stay where you are and don't interfere. Moreover, the Iraqi resistance is attacking um, the uh, U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq, and why the Iraqis is because the uh, every time there is an attack in Syria, the Americans go to the soft target and the weakest link, that is Damascus, and they attack the Syrians who do not want to engage in a battle. However, the Americans are afraid of engaging with the Americans because the, Ameri- the with the Iraqis because they the Iraqis have the capability to render the life very difficult to the, Iraqi, uh, to the Americans in Iraq, particularly when the Americans have several military bases. But what's happening is now that there is Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Jordan who are intercepting all the missiles and drones that are coming from Yemen and from Iraq on Israel in support of Gaza. And we not only have Arab countries that are not helping the Palestinian from the humanitarian side, but they are stopping the axis of the resistance from contributing, not to defeat Israel, this is not the way to defeat Israel, but to put pressure on the American and say, stop this war, achieve a ceasefire, open humanitarian corridor. So by um, saying that he only condemned or people expected a war, There is no war more than what is already happening between Lebanon and Israel.
0: Thank you so much. Um, So, yeah, maybe we can touch a little bit more on the the allegations against the U.S., right, in the context of of this conflict. How how do Nasrallah's allegations influence Hezbollah's relationship with the U.S.? And then, I guess, a two-part question there. Um, the the potential ramifications that maybe the the appeal for other Arab uh, nations to um, kind of enact these uh, economic measures and cut off oil and gas and so on and so forth, what would that look like if that happens? I mean, what are the potential consequences or ramifications of that?
1: I'm going to be straightforward and honest with you, really. Most of the Arab countries are delighted to see the bones of Hamas completely broken. They're happy to see the Israelis defeating Hamas or uh, really teaching a lesson to Hamas. Nevertheless, there is no lesson to be taught Hamas because you have 2.3 million inhabitants in Gaza and they not all call Hamas. Hamas is a, a Palestinian resistant group that operate along with other resistant groups for a, um, a valid a reason and a valid cause they have because Benjamin Netanyahu went to the United Nations just a few weeks ago took a, a, a geographic plan of Israel where the West Bank and Gaza don't exist and he saw he, he showed the world how the economic and um, uh, line that go across from India to Saudi Arabia to Israel and going through Greece and Europe that is going to supply the European with gas and oil and will be the um, alternative of the Chinese Silk Road. Secondly, when Netanyahu stood up and said, the Oslo agreement is finished, is dead. That means he's saying that all the American efforts are no longer taken into consideration. They haven't never been serious because no American responded to that. And Donald Trump already moved the embassy to Jerusalem and gave the uh, Syrian occupied Golan Heights to the Israelis. So saying, okay, unlimited support to Israel, the Palestinian cause is forgotten. We have a few people in Gaza, we will find a solution for them. Already we are uh, rendering their life miserable on daily basis. And not only that, if we look at the West Bank, where there the is President Mahmoud Abbas that was elected in 2005 and doesn't want to move from his chair. He is one of the best Israeli and American partner. And yet every single day, the Israelis break into the West Bank. They've killed around 120 to 150 Palestinians since the 7th of October, where Hamas doesn't have the control. They have arrested 1,500 Palestinians, and they can do whatever they want. No Palestinian had the right to construct on his own land, even in the West Bank. So this policy and the testimony of all the Israeli officers and officials, are they are telling us that, first, they don't consider the Palestinians as human beings but animals. Others went a bit further, saying, we don't want to offend the animals and consider the Palestinians as animals with all due respect to the animals, because they are inferior to animals. So therefore, we can't talk about human rights because Palestinians are no longer considered humans and have been completely demonized. Also, when the, the Israeli officials speak clearly about ethnic cleansing, pushing the Palestinian outside Gaza, outside the West Bank, never agree on all the UN Security Council resolution, never allow the Palestinians to return to their land, even if it is supported by international law, including the United States and all its club and allies. Because of all that, the Palestinians have no longer anything to lose. As they are animals, according to the Israelis, then they have to come out and look how they can protect themselves in a survival mode. So now for the first time in the history of Israel since 1973, the Palestinians take the initiative to attack the Israelis. And then suddenly we have an earthquake at the size of the whole world that is shaking and Israel has a right to defend itself by killing as many Palestinians as possible to the point that the number of casualties today are 37,000 between killed, wounded, and under the rubble. What the the Israelis are doing now, they have inserted the north of Gaza. They're trying to allow only a small passage occasionally on specific hours for all the Palestinians in the north to flee toward the south, so they want to squeeze 2.3 million in one small area. Already Gaza is 41 kilometers long and six to 12 kilometers wide. And they want to squeeze them in a place where one single bomb can kill hundreds on every single bomb. So all the atrocity and the ethnic cleansing that leads to genocide, the cut of water, electricity, and all that, the Arabs are not moving. The Arabs are not capable of asking for a ceasefire. They don't want to use oil and gas as a weapon. They are afraid of uh, the um, American reaction, but they also are more or less careless about the Palestinian cause. Well, what is uh, linking the Arabs with the Palestinians is the language, really. They don't have border with Palestine. They have business with the Israelis. They don't want to hear about the Palestinian cause. And they say, well, it's finished. Let's do something about these people and then finish it. If Israel wants to finish it without embarrassing us, well, yes, why not? Now, that is the attitude of the Arabs. It is not going to change.
0: Yeah, my God. I mean, today we had... The uh, Israeli minister—I need to look up his name, Ami Chai Eliyahu, right? That he—I mean—the genocidal language being used is just absolutely out of this world. They're telling the entire world, "Hey, we're just going to ethnically cleanse all of Palestine," and uh, the world is just like, "Yeah, cool." It's—it's it's absolutely ridiculous um, that we're seeing this. And—and and, you know—a comment that you made—they tell them to flee, right? But then they bomb the areas where they're supposed to flee. Um, we're definitely gonna go a little bit more into the the neighboring countries and kind of how their actions or lack of action impact the entire situation um in a bit. I wanted to ask you a final question and I'll hand it over to Sarah. Um we know that obviously the conflict has evolved massively and Israel's military strategy is kind of shifting a little bit and changing now. And of course, with Hezbollah now, um with their operations across the the, the Lebanese-Israeli border, they've forced Israel to split. military focus essentially. So I just kind of wanted to ask about um, how Israel's current military strategy kind of looks like um, and how it has evolved now with this latest speech and and everything that's going on in the region. Well,
1: there are different uh, points that you raised. What the minister Eliyahu said is um, really, this is not shocking. What is shocking is when he was on the interview on the radio, and he said it is possible to nuke Gaza, the problem is not there. The problem is the journalists who ask him, what about the 243 hostages? It is not about the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza that you can uh, throw a nuclear bomb on the entire population imitating what the Americans did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was concerned about the 243 hostages. So he double danced down saying, well, yes, he needs to take into consideration the life of 243 Israeli. And he's right, because he considered the 2.3 Palestinians as animals. So he has no consideration for the animals even, even if here in Europe we have a lot of consideration to the life of every being, including the animals. So it shows that the Palestinians have not even the level of consideration that the animals can enjoy. For that, the main concern is about only the Israeli prisoners and captives. Now, why he's saying that? First, he revealed for the first time, admitted that Israel has nuclear bombs. This has never been heard of, and Israel never admitted that. Secondly, he is showing the criminal mindset toward the Palestinians that exist in the um, mind of, the, of many Zionists. We don't talk about Jew here because the Jewish religion, most of the Jewish religion, stand against these acts. They are against their religion. There is no connection what Netanyahu is trying to make between uh, the Jew and the behavior of the Zionists in Israel. Now, what the aim of Israel at the moment in Gaza? What they're trying to do is they have surrounded Gaza from different sides, if that is your question, isn't it? So it's Correct, yeah. Yeah, so from the North West, along the coast, they pushed forces toward the Al-Shate camp. From the north, uh, they pushed forces toward uh, Beit Hanun and Jabalia. And from the uh, middle, they pushed forces toward uh, north of Wadi Gaza, the Gaza Valley, to cut and surround more or less 100 square kilometers of territory and allow a small passage for people while they control it under fire to go from the north to the south. Because first of all, the number of casualties of the civilians is affecting the um, narrative worldwide. So they don't want to hear more civilians are killed, although they have uh, total disregard to the life of civilians. Secondly, they're bombing hospitals. They want to evacuate the hospitals. Because people during uh, my work as a war correspondent in area where Israel uh, has bombed uh, in Lebanon or in Gaza, people go to hospitals for two reasons. First, because they think it is safer. Second, because they want to charge their phone and listen to the news because there is electricity that is in the uh, the hospital, and they can always uh, make sure to know what's happening in the world. Otherwise, at their home, because Israel kept electricity and water, it is an occupation forces, and it can do whatever it wants in Gaza, and it is in control of anything that goes in and out. Therefore, it is um, um, the inhabitants of Gaza are considered as occupiers. Therefore, they have the right to be uh, in a resistance position. So this is why they go to hospitals and to make sure they know anyone of their relative because every day uh, Israel is killing between 200 and 400 people. So targeting the hospital and asking the hospital to be totally evacuated is forcing the majority of the population that is around the hospital to flee toward the South. And why are they doing that? is they want less casualty when their soldiers are going to go in. The less casualty there are, the more visible the resistance is. They want also to put the burden on Hamas and the Islamic resist- and the Palestinian resistance in the south because if the Palestinian resistance is left with 2.3 million people in a small area where there aren't uh, houses to accommodate them, why the number of Uh, casualty is very high is because the relatives meet and sit in one place and they flee to the south and you have between 30 to 80 people in one single flat. So because of that, they want to put this pressure on Hamas and say, okay, now you feed them, you look after them, you secure uh, homes or shelter for these people and you're not going to manage, then these people will turn against you. This is the objective of the, of the Israelis to ethnic cleanse the North. And then if the North is easy to fall, then they will turn towards the South. Because I've seen in other wars uh, of Israel, when they push their tanks to a limited area and they see there's a possibility to go further, then they go further. So they take the opportunity. They are very fine military strategists. So if no the North doesn't stand and doesn't hold All the resistance in the north after the invasion uh, doesn't make the life of the Israeli uh, occupation forces difficult, then the Israelis can turn towards the south and create a, a serious exodus of all the Palestinians outside Gaza, which I doubt is not going to happen because I don't think the resistance is not aware of the Israeli plan.
2: So I want to start exploring the regional relationships around Palestine. We keep talking about what's going on inside of Gaza, and that's important, but this is going to reverberate throughout the region. So I kind of wanted to touch on, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, uh, Saudi was working on normalizing relations with Israel. And then when this started, they kind of said, no, no, we're going to stop that. And then they said, actually, we're not going to stop. And then they condemned Hamas. And um, why has there been a shift in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy kind of back and forth? And it it lends us to think that maybe there are more covert interactions with Israel and what could be their underlying motivations of of this of keeping this relationship okay uh not even that they're shooting down missiles launched from Yemen and Iraq maybe we who even really knows what's going on with that and also um from an outside perspective uh as someone that lives in the west I always look at Saudi Arabia with an expectation that they would be the stewards of uh Islam in a way because they're the host of the holiest sites in Islam but they're they don't really step into that leadership issue like Iran does. And why do you think that is with Saudi? Is it just a, a money thing, or is, it, is there something else kind of going on?
1: The Saudi Arabia said they're not going to normalize with the Israelis now for several reasons. First of all, they don't want to give this normalization achievement and victory to a Democrat like Joe Biden, who considers Saudi Arabia as a pariah state. And they prefer, if Donald Trump is going to come to power, to give it to a Republican rather than a Democrat. Now, the war on Gaza came as a manna to the Saudis. And now they can say, well, because what you have done in Palestine against the Palestinians in Gaza, so we're not going to normalize because we can't afford selling this normalization to our people, which is not true. Because at the end of the day, who controls Saudi Arabia is the monarchy, and Mohammed bin Salman can change the weather anytime he wants. Second point is Hamas is considered a terrorist organization by Saudi Arabia. People maybe don't remember that, but many Hamas officials were thrown in jail in Saudi Arabia. Third, the leadership of the Sunni world in the Middle East is over, is no longer in the hand of the Saudis. Turkey took a bit, uh, Saudi Arabia maintained some interest in some area. The main interest was in Syria and Lebanon, really. And the Gulf countries respect the Saudis and they can't say no to the Saudis for any issue at the exception of Qatar, that was boycotted by the Saudis and uh, the Saudis imposed sanctions on Qatar, For a few years until they understood that Qatar is surviving really without the Saudis. But there is something that unites the Gulf countries together and doesn't uh, allow the strong split among them. So, for the Saudis uh, not to announce the normalization with Israel, but to receive two Israeli ministers just before the uh, war on Gaza and continuous. Uh, relationship business relationship with the Israeli company that is still ongoing this has never stopped even without announcing the normalization Saudi Arabia today is no longer interested in leading the Arab state or the Sunni in the Middle East or in the world they no longer the leaders we see Pakistan is uh, doesn't obey to the Saudis or um, uh, other countries, uh, Algeria, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, uh, and uh, in the Middle East, we see Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, um, Jordan, even the Emirates, they clash with Saudis in Yemen and they have uh, conflict of interest in Yemen. So it's no longer the old position of Saudi Arabia where Saudi used to pay a lot of money to all these countries around it and make sure that they maintain uh, loyalty and uh, area of influence. Today, the Saudis have lost a lot in the Arab world and uh, what's happening in Gaza is really the least of their concern. This is why if the Saudi wants, they can impose the ceasefire on the Americans and on the Israelis with no time. But this is not the will of the Saudis. They just walk like all the others and say, this is what we call for, but we don't want to impose. And the war on Yemen and Saudi Arabia used to call three to five times a meeting of the United Nations Security Council uh, or the General Assembly. And for Gaza, they didn't call not even one.
2: Well, you brought up Yemen, so that's another thing that I want to explore because we have a recent, uh, the recent peace, we'll call it peace, negotiated by China between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for all intents and purposes, ended the war in Yemen, um, has obviously not ended the blockade, but, and we work closely with Yemen, so we get regular updates from there, but what we do have is from, (laughs) I kind of want to read this statement because I found it to be quite interesting. Um, answer Allah Uh, people actually I want to say that people are mistaking and saying Yemen has declared war Uh, Yemen has not declared war on Israel answer Allah has declared war or just a sustained attack so um, (laughs) striking the Zionist entity made us feel warm and happy inside and we were overjoyed when we heard U.S. aircraft carriers We're coming. We asked Saudi Arabia, despite being our enemy, to let us through their borders to fight in Palestine, but they refused, even though we're we're very excited to fight. We put international criticism at our feet. We will make you accept world peace against your will. There is a prevailing logic in the world that says that the weak should submit to the strong and that the poor should follow the rich. The logic is rejected by us in Yemen because we are a people with dignity and pride. Um, they took responsibility for those three attacks um, and had basically declared war with the Yemeni military, kind of saying we support it, but we're not declaring war. Um, how does, does this change anything for Yemen? Um, what I'm seeing now is a kind of a shift uh, where Yemen is somewhere that we've worked with for about two years now, um, kind of a forgotten a people, a forgotten place in terms of foreign policy. And now that I just asked you about Saudi, and we've, deci- we've agreed that Saudi is not the leader, can Yemen now emerge? Because Yemen has taken a hardline stance from the very beginning, and is now saying, we're going to continue to attack from the South, whether or not they let us. So what what does this change? How does this influence regional cooperation or arguments or diplomacy or can can Yemen even enter into international diplomacy given the state that they're still in
1: Well the only thing that Yemen can do now is to launch missiles and drones on Israel and they resulted very effective during the war against Saudi Arabia and we have seen what they have done with Aramco how they fought the Saudis to a ceasefire etc Now the problem is that Yemen is far from uh, Gaza, and because Yemen is very far from Gaza, all its missiles and drone need to cross between 1,500 to 1,700 kilometers. The ballistic missiles need to go above uh, the uh, level of Earth and then go down, and it was extremely easy to be intercepted. The problem with Yemen is Yemen doesn't have the Iranian technology with the missile that can, to to put it in a more simple uh, terminology for those who do not uh, know a lot about the military, so that their missiles cannot change the speed while they are in the air and to avoid interception. This is why countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the Americans who reinstalled the Patriot missile and interception missile back in Saudi Arabia when they pulled them out, um, when they were in disagreement with the Saudis and they wanted to teach them a lesson, now they are back and they are back only to serve Israel. And the Saudis accepted because of uh, one reason, one objective, it to defend Israel, to defend the airspace of Israel and to prevent the Yemeni from uh, bombing israelis and gather more support for their cause can you imagine a missile landing in israel launched from yemen how the population in the middle east will sympathize more with the yemeni cause they no longer they will no longer looked at as a small militia who needs to be um, destroyed but at least a part in Yemen that support the Palestinian cause, where all their regimes like Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the Emirates are not supporting the Palestinian cause and are leaving the Palestinians for their destiny. So the only people who are firing against the Israelis are from Lebanon, from Yemen, and from Iraq. I don't want to mention the Syrian border because the Syrian border from the occupied Golan Heights is more or less the same group as the Lebanese and the Iraqis and the Syrian resistance, but uh, that's a bit limited because it's much more complicated and Russia plays a role and the Russian-Israeli relationship plays a role and uh, the uh, uh, the Damascus Authority doesn't want to start a war with the Israelis that is capable of reacting harshly now that it has the full support of the international community that closes an eye even on its war crime and crimes against humanity.
2: Well you were you don't think that you're going to get away with not talking about Syria today do you? You can't just it's we're not going to not talk about Syria. We have to talk about Syria. But first we'll talk about Jordan. So Jordan has a, one of the largest Palestinian uh, populations in the world outside of Palestine. I think it might even be larger than the, than the population in Gaza. But um they have you know they have strong historical ties with Palestinians. Uh, the pal- uh, the people there have been protesting asking them to open the border. They've refused. The King of Jordan has done a couple photo shoots. then they recalled their ambassador, but then they also offered to host. Uh, US military and air defense systems. Uh, what's kind of the story with with Jordan? Um, they've they they seem to be the one in the region that has the strongest ties to the west if if I could say that.
1: Yes, you certainly may say that because, uh, for example, Jordan, during the war in Syria, uh, with, along with Turkey, uh, has established an operational room for the Americans and the Gulf countries to uh, plan and support uh, the, uh, all the attempt to destabilize and create a failed state in Syria. So um, Jordan was the first to warn the Israelis about the 1973 war. And Jordan maintains an excellent relationship with Israel even before Egypt signed a peace deal with the Israelis. Now, yes, Jordan doesn't want the Palestinian exodus from the West Bank. And this is what the Israelis are trying to do. And ethnic cleansing, it means eliminated the presence of the Palestinians. This is what the, is the Israeli target at the end of the day, is to push out the Palestinian in the West Bank toward Jordan and the one, the one in Gaza toward Egypt. And the Americans are trying to bribe the uh, Egyptian and the uh, Jordanian by saying, well, you have debt, we can cancel these debts, and you need financial support that we can step up and give you money if you need to. But uh, let us try to sort out the question of, Palestinian uh, refugees or Palestinians who are kicked out. Now, why Egypt and Jordan refuse to have the Palestinians? For a simple reason. Which country can have 2.3 million Palestinians and then a population that is in support of the popul- of the Palestinian cause? Because we need to keep in mind that it's a huge gap between an Egyptian and an Egyptian leader, an Egyptian leader with no problem to have a relationship with Israel and Egyptian population and Jordanian population who never digested the relationship with Israel because they are nationalistic, because they support the just Palestinian cause, because they understand these people have been deprived from their territory and they want it back, or at least to live with the Israeli in two states, as the Americans said, but they never uh, applied. So in Jordan, if we have 2.3 million, there is a strong possibility, as in Egypt, to destabilize the regime. For that, nobody wants that. And, but they're not putting enough pressure on Israel, recalling the ambassadors, so what, at the end of the war? And it's going to end in one week or one month or two months, where well, maybe I'm exaggerating two months. The Israelis can't last for two months. Uh, for two more months but um uh, once the war ends then the ambassadors will return so this symbolic act is not helping the 2.3 million people of gaza to have back their water or electricity or medicine or fuel for the hospitals um, uh, all the bread they want to eat all the everything they need usually gaza used to receive 500 trucks per day. Now they are receiving between 14, 15, 17, and 20 per day. And these trucks, for your information, they cross Rafah, the Egyptian border. They go directly to the Erez border, where the Israelis are. They empty the truck, they control it, and then they send it back with the United Nations um, employee, who have lost 70 so far, killed by the Israelis. And they are back and distributed to a small, tiny portion of population that are living with the United Nations employee in their schools. Because schools, uh, the the Palestinians consider these are the safest place, hospitals and schools, churches and mosques. Well, no, they all hit and they all uh, have been uh, destroyed. And uh, the Israelis committed massacres in these places. So the Jordanian, I think they um, so far are exerting a very shy uh, influence or policy. They're trying to voice their support to the Palestinians, which is right, but they don't do more than that. The Palestinians don't need only voices. And if we talk about what the um, Jordanians are doing, what the Egyptians are doing, because these are the two countries with the border with the Palestinians, And then we go to the Lebanese and say why they are not waging war on Israel and they have already lost 60 men with their war on the Israelis. So you see, just to mix up the first question and this question together.
2: All right, now we have to go to Turkey. So Turkey and Israel work together in Armenia to to ethnically cleanse Artsakh, now known as Nagorno-Karabakh. But Erdogan has come out very strongly against Israel, um and condemning them calling it a genocide repeatedly <clears throat> refusing to condemn Hamas and going as far as to not only promote but then participate in a massive protest which then Israel bombed the Turkish hospital in Gaza but why do you think Erdogan is positioning himself like this people keep saying oh he, he has an election coming up he, he doesn't he doesn't have an election coming up um i guess he could use popular support in a way but um is he only doing this because he can get away with this being a NATO member and kind of uh, not like still being in the pocket? Uh, it, they, he also helps transport oil from Azerbaijan to Israel. So so what is Erdo, Erdogan's kind of uh, end game here? Or, or what's his? what are his intentions? N- nobody ever knows, but I'm still gonna ask you what Erdogan's intentions kind of are.
1: Well, if you look at the beginning, uh, of the second week of October, Erdogan said nothing. He was almost silent, And uh, with the killing that started against the Palestinians, he remained silent. He was outspoken only in the last two, a few weeks, but he did not cut relationship with Israel as Bolivia did. He did uh, only recall the ambassador. They are, uh, A bit of exchange of rough uh, uh, discourse between him and Netanyahu, but uh, the situation was much worse in 2010 during the flotilla and the attempt to support Gaza at that time. Now, the reason why Erdogan remained silent for quite a while is because during the last elections, Erdogan understood that he was almost losing the election and the presidency. And due to his foreign policy, where he was in bad terms with everybody with the Arab world, with the Israelis, with the Russian, yes and no, with NATO, yes and no, with the Americans angry and they yet they want him in. So the Americans were supporting the coup d'etat against Erdogan, but then they uh, put sanction because of the S 400 missiles, the Russian S 400 missile, but then they need him because of Ukraine grain deal, and then they need him to accept uh, Sweden and uh, Norway in, the, uh, uh, in the NATO. So all that mix of, of foreign policy where Erdogan was standing everywhere and nowhere, he understood that his best policy is to recover good relationship with everybody. This is why he started with the Arab countries, because he had bad relationship with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and uh, the Emirates, and he uh, tried to mend this relationship because also during the Khashoggi's uh, um, killing uh, of the journalist, uh, Erdogan was very strongly against Saudi Arabia and uh, showing all the intelligence information that his, the Turkish intelligence information held from inside the embassy and proved to be listening to everything uh, that was happening in the embassy. So he wanted to incriminate uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the relationship remained very volatile. Because of that, because of the result of the election, because he, his economy was in a bad state, he wanted to recover some of the economy, particularly when the inflation was, hitting him extremely hard and uh, the uh, Turkish lira was losing to the dollar. For that, the relationship with Israel and the Arab states or the other Arab states believe, well, that was before the 7th of October, that Israel is strong, the strongest army in the Middle East. It turned out to be extremely vulnerable and uh, that the relationship with Israel is the key to maintain a good relationship with the Americans. For that, he regained the relationship with the Israelis and lifted to a much better level before the 7th of October. And he remained as such until after the 15th of October. Now Erdogan has a big part of the supporters who are in in Syria and are called the Syrian oppositions and the Syrian jihadis and all the other. Islamist group in Idlib and in the uh, Northwest of Syria. And because of that, his position as the leader, a secondary leader of the Arab world that he wanted to become as such, uh, made him in a very embarrassing situation, particularly when uh, when Hamas uh, is said to be a Muslim Brotherhood and he is also a Muslim Brotherhood along with other countries in the Middle East, like Qatar, for example. So because of that, he feels some duty to support Hamas. But even though in the first couple of weeks he didn't, until he understood that this is going a bit far and his silence is going to cost him even further, now he stepped in, but still he did not take any serious step to force or to threaten the Americans. I will never accept Sweden as part of NATO if you don't stop the war down. I will will allow the Russian to do this and that in the Black Sea if you don't. He didn't threaten the Americans to squeeze them or to twist their arm to stop the war in Gaza. Every single leader in the Middle East has something to uh, use to put pressure on the Americans and didn't do that. Even Egypt, even the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, they have the biggest uh, military base in Bahrain. Everybody has something, but they should not do because they really want to get rid of Hamas.
2: And we're gonna go back there. Now we're here, it's Syria time. So. Um... President Assad has not issued any statement at all, I don't believe. Um, The last time that a statement even came from his office was 17 October. Um, We know that Golan Heights have been repeatedly attacked, um, also with Hezbollah launching rockets there to hit the IOF. And then uh, IDF, in the beginning, not so much anymore, but they repeatedly hit Damascus and the Lepo airports, shutting them down for periods of time. Uh, We understand that the Syria is is spread completely thin, but to have, uh, I know, and we know Assad is a very quiet and pragmatic leader, but I was hoping that with this recent forays with China and Russia, that he would be uh, more outspoken. And he's just not really said anything other than um, showing his sympathy and uh, condemning Israel. Uh, He didn't condemn Hamas in his statement But we do know that Hamas and the Syrian Arab army didn't really get along, but they've normalized those relations since then. Um, Why do you think that Assad is so quiet? And what do you think that his, his silence means, if anything?
1: It's a difficult question you're putting me here. So there are many points to share with you today. First of all, Hamas was not in a good term with Assad only. They participated to overthrow Assad, and they were active in fighting within the Takfiri group, within the Al-Qaeda group, and within the uh, Syrian opposition groups. So with all the groups, with the pro-Turkey groups, uh, the Palestinians were there. And Khalid Mishal, the former representative of Hamas outside Gaza, was one of the main reasons that brought Hamas into a disastrous relationship with all the Arab countries that were supporting the Palestinian cause. Now, this relationship, following the intervention of Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah, he managed to convince Assad to receive the Hamas delegation, and he did. It doesn't mean the Syrian population forget about or forgot about what Hamas did. However, in the Syrian mentality, the support of the Palestinian cause is there because this is what Syria was about. It was one of the first countries who fought against Israel in 1973 to recover the Palestinian territory and has lost the Golan Heights. Now, that's one aspect. The second aspect is the Russian who are not ready to start another war with uh, Israel or at least to support a war, a Syrian war against Israel? The Russian Israeli relationship are very good, even if Israel supported Ukraine in the war against Russia, sent some intelligence services, sent drones and uh, uh, electronic material, and shared some experience still there are many russians in uh, israel and many uh, jews in russia who have some uh, power and the last point i want to say is from the syrian philosophy and understanding of the military situation israel is capable with its uh, air force to go and destroy or the military line of the Syrian army along the defensive line in Deir Zur in the northeast and in Idlib in the northwest. And what will happen is it will open a road for the Kurds to advance in Deir Zur and for the Jihadists and Al-Qaeda to break in Idlib and uh, uh, go toward the north of Aleppo. Because Assad doesn't have the possibility today to open a front against the Israeli, according to his understanding, although the Iranians have another point of view that is completely different, at the end of the day, fighting against Israel would require a large destruction in your country, even if you can impose deterrence on the Israelis because if you inflict damage on Israel, they will stop and they will understand that there is a balance of power. This is not something that Assad is uh, ready to do today because of his economy, because of the crippling sanction on his country, because Iran brings one tanker of oil per month, and he doesn't receive a lot of support From any other country, but a bit from Russia and a bit from Iran. And because he needs to look after what there is to maintain the country still united within the area that is under his control, where there is a large concentration of population. Already, the European and the Americans are imposing very harsh sanctions on Syria. They are stealing the food basket in the northeast. They're stealing. The gas and um, uh, oil, these are not my words. These are Donald Trump's words. He said, I want uh, the oil. I'm taking the oil. And uh, Joe Biden just followed exactly the policy of Donald Trump. So because of all these reasons together, he is allowing a certain flexibility because the Golan Heights and the Sheba farm meet at a certain point where there is a disputed area between Lebanon and Syria to whom this area belongs to. So if Hezbollah fires from an area that is considered by the Israelis as a Syrian occupied uh, Golan Heights, then they blame the Syrian and the bomb the Syrian. But from Hezbollah's point of view, it belongs to Lebanon and therefore it is legitimate to bomb the Israelis from there. And the last point is about the Israeli bombing of the airports. The Israelis have a very good intelligence services. Every time there is a plane that is landing, one of these, for example, when the the Iranian foreign minister, Amir Abdullahian, came to Syria, before the landing, the Israeli bombed the Damascus airport. So the plane was forced to go to Aleppo, and within minutes, they bombed the Aleppo airport. So the plane was forced to land in Beirut, and then he traveled by land to Beirut. Sometimes when there are um, uh, military hardware that comes to Syria via air, via the uh, Syrian airport, or where there are key uh, personality within the military um, advisors, the Iranian military advisors who come to Syria. Sometimes the Israelis bomb the airport and or prevent the Syrians from opening the door of the plane and force them to push the plane to return if this or that person uh, comes off the plane. And the Israelis are very good in calling they have access to the phone numbers of officers. And we're talking about high-ranking officers, as they do in uh, with Gaza in the West Bank, they do also in Syria. And they say, according to the manifest that we have a copy of, because when a, f- when a plane leaves to a destination, the manifest of the passengers is sent. And on the way, everything in the air can be received by... All the intelligence services, so they identify certain personality and then prevent them from coming off the plane. But the alternative is easy. This or that person or whatever supply is going to Syria, it goes from Iran to Iraq and then into Syria, and it will rise always to Syria, regardless of all the Israeli measures. And the Israelis acknowledge that every five shipments, we bomb one. So there are four that arrives. However, it is not the time for the uh, Syrian uh, government to wage war on Israel, according to the wish of President Assad.
0: So we've kind of unpacked everything except for Iran. So I have a question uh, based on Iran here, and then we'll we'll slowly start wrapping. We know that obviously Iran's been engaged in diplomatic efforts to stop these attacks on Gaza, uh, we know that also they they essentially said, you know, if this does not if this does not stop, if it's particularly the harm to children and innocent civilians, that there's a high likelihood um, that they would need to respond if if these strikes persist. Um, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about Iran's position on all of this and um, essentially what drives their participation in in the conflict and 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 their strategies, how they essentially impact the broader Middle East?
1: So, the Iranians are extremely careful in the word they choose. They never said, we will need to respond. They said, the axis of the resistance will have to respond. This is from the Iranian uh, point of view and language. It is something that they assume it can happen and it may not happen. So what the Iranians have done throughout the decades is they have applied their constitution. And in their constitution, article 150, they are obliged to support all the oppressed people of the world, regardless their religion. So what they do is there is a population like in Venezuela who is in need of support and ask Iran for help. So the Iranians, Went to Venezuela and supported the people, the Venezuelan people, by restoring their uh, refineries, by helping them to regain the extraction of oil. In Lebanon, there are people who want to fight against Israel who are called Iranian proxies, and there's a very wrong terminology, but it is something that adopted by all the uh, lightly informed Western academic um so they support Hezbollah if Syria wants to fight and uh, keep the state united and want to fight against the uh, jihadists then they support Syria it doesn't mean Assad is Iranian proxy because Assad disagrees with Iran on many issues disagrees with Russia on many issues and at the end of the day he's doing what is in what he believes it is in his interest, because had Syria been an Iranian proxy, the missile would have been falling on Israel since a very long time. But because of that, the Palestinian in Gaza said several times the Palestinian resistance, the Iranians are supporting us and never ask us anything. In fact, Iran disagree with any deal with the Israelis. However, Agree with the Palestinians if the Palestinians accept to live in a two state with the Israelis. The problem is that the Israelis don't want the Palestinians to live with them in a second state. So, because of that, Iran is supporting the access of the resistance. Iran is uh, sending money, sharing equipment, and weapons to all those who wants to fight uh, for their cause. And because of that, Iran has an area of influence without dictating its policy that sometimes doesn't meet with the policy of the locals, like in Iraq, like in Syria, and like in Israel. So that's very obvious. And so far, Iran has been very active diplomatically, trying to convince the Arab that they can do something. But Iran is, the second most sanctioned country in the world after russia used to be the first but then russia went uh, with a double sanction used to be 3500 sanctions on iran now there are over 6500 on russia <laughs> so.
2: congratulations to russia
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes go ahead
2: um then we have to ask since you mentioned russia so we're, we're we've talked about that for gosh a year and a half. I've always looked at the Russia Ukraine um, conflict as one battle or one stage in the World War Three, the battle between unipolarity and multipolarity, mm-hmm. and then seeing those uprisings in. Africa as another kind of facet or front. And now Israel and Palestine, I think I see it all as like kind of an interconnectedness. Um, I'm wondering if you see it that way. Um, Also, with uh, Ukraine and Russia still ongoing, how does this contribute to that? How long does this last? Does this lead into another front with China, Taiwan? Like, Where are we going? Because everything's still in flux and I just don't believe that the Israel-Palestine thing is the beginning or the end-all be-all. There's so many more things that are moving at this point.
1: Everything is connected and nothing is separate. And I'll explain that. First of all, the story started in 2015 and not in 2022. In 2015, Russia was convinced that the Americans are doing their best to dislodge Russia from its naval base in Tartus, Syria. The Russians went in Syria to support the Assad government for one objective is to tell the Americans, let us work together, stop this war. You're not going to achieve this objective, and the alternative is for the jihadis the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda to occupy this area. You're not going to be able to contain it because you've done this mistake before in Afghanistan. And Henry Clinton came out and said, the uh, Al-Qaeda and the Takfiri we are fighting today are the same people we have funded. So things will go out of control. And then we start uh, from the beginning to fight these people that you are supporting today. The Americans thought, that it is possible to make a deal with the Russians. And that was at the time of Secretary of State John Kerry. But then the Pentagon refused and considered that dealing with Russia is taboo. And they went out for Russia. Now, what happened later on is the second front is Ukraine. And what happened in Ukraine changed the whole world. In which way? We don't have multipolarity yet. We can't live in this illusion, but we can't even pretend to have multipolarity after the first or the second or the third year of challenging the unipolarity. The Americans after Second World War, it took them from 1945 to 1982 when the perestroika dismantled the Soviet Union control the whole world until 2015, when the first time Russia uh, rose uh, and stood up to defend its interests. In 2011, uh, Russia at the time of Medvedev failed to stop the Americans from uh, invading and attacking Libya. So everything started in 2015. Because of the attack on Russia, Where 50 nations, according to the Americans' information, gathered in Runstein to attack Russia, defeat Russia, cripple the Russian economy, divide Russia into so many mini states. And they have failed. Because of that, we are observing a very big change in the world, where, first of all, the uh, the, um, I was disconnected uh, this uh, by the information that uh, russia uh, israel cut Gaza in two well that was um, a few days ago, no now so,
2: well they keep saying it over and over again, so they've said it again today, yeah. so you know that's the this the misinformation with Israel is just yeah so because of that,
1: we have seen a major shift. In countries like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, saying we want to deal with China with the UN, we want to sell oil to China, and we want to exchange with local currency, we want to be part of the BRICS. Uh, they started to refuse to uh, reduce, uh, to increase the uh, oil production that Joe Biden wanted an increase of 1 million barrels per day. Russia said, let us decrease of 1 million barrels per day. Saudi Arabia said no to both, and they decreased of 2 million barrels per day. So we've seen the OPEC country looking after their own interest, but not the American interest in that particular case, but we cannot generalize. We've seen how India, one of the closest allies of the United States, joining effort with Russia and China, you're using the sanctions on Russia. We've seen Africa, how it's kicking out France, how it's joining the uh, uh, Russian in a meeting in St. Petersburg with 49 countries, meeting with President Putin, who explained to them what's happening and who received them and expressed his readiness to support them. We've seen how China is so active in uh, Africa, and the Americans say we cannot defeat the Chinese there how Latin America is turning the page and standing for its own interest, not necessarily against the United States, but also with Russia. So all that shift, including Gaza reaction today, is because the Americans are no longer a viable partner for everything, for peace, for partnership, for commerce. They are the bully of the world, distributing sanctions, left, right, and center, forcing, luckily, forcing the countries to look for alternatives of the SWIFT, alternatives of the dollar, alternatives of commerce and trade in local currencies, So, and in the Yuan or in other currency, and the fall of Europe. That is a major event, and all that because Russia did not fall in Ukraine, had Russia fell in Ukraine, we would have seen another fifty years of a U.S. occupation with the with the European ally and a total colonialism again of the whole world. Today, we 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 observe the total decline of the European economy, total decline of the European um, influence in Africa and in the Middle East. The almost unexist- non-existing We see the rising of countries in uh, Africa, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Asia, and all of that because Russia managed not to lose. That's it. That's it. And now today, we see a hesitant China. Although they have managed to break the ice between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but still they need a more active role. That is the wishful thinking of the Middle East. But it doesn't mean this is what China is ready to do so, because China is still maintaining excellent relationship with the Americans, because they both need one another. And they both still dealing with one another, notwithstanding all the sanctions that America, over 550 sanctions on China, is imposing on China. So we see the Chinese pragmatic, They work on 100 year plan. They very patient in working on um, taking things gradually, entering into continent in a different way. They are well established with the Russian now, with the Russian gas line that comes from Mongolia, with many sources of energy that come from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from the Emirates, from different sources, uh, from Azerbaijan, from Venezuela. So all that, China is making sure that economically strong. And then it turned out to look at this war, as uh, at this military, as the war is happening tomorrow and it's never going to happen at the same time. And because of that, China today is a very powerful country and it is much more powerful because Russia was not defeated what the Americans wanted to do to defeat Russia and to send a message to China, they failed and they brought Russia and China closer together like they have never been. And that is uh, the hope of humanity when Russia and China are offering a model that is not a warmongering model to the world as the Americans offered. And I can tell you whatever the Chinese and the Russian model is going to be, is not going to be worse than the Americans because we've seen the worst in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Palestine, how they uh, deal with double standards, the ultimate hypocrisy. If um, at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Ursula von der Leyen said, if Putin cuts the water or electricity, That will be a war crime and we will persecute him. And then this is what exactly Benjamin Netanyahu is doing with the Palestinians. And then Ursula von der Leyen goes and speaks illegally in the name of the EU. And she doesn't represent the EU foreign policy and say the EU is with you. France exactly did the same. Germany did the same. But these people don't count anymore. So just this double standard. And hypocrisy, it's thanks to the internet, is much more obvious today. And people can no longer be fooled about the lack of value that we have here in Europe. And we pretend that we are countries of law, that we respect the law, that we uh, have a certain value we would like to keep. It turned out that I can go to President Emmanuel Macron in the street, insult him in his face and he will tell me, okay, let us have a dialogue. But if I say Israel is killing children, I go to the police and I am interrogated. We are living in a dictatorship.
0: We've lost everything. It's a complete dystopia. I mean, uh, I saw Abby Martin go up to her senator's office uh, just the other day and uh, And cops showed up, you know, within 20 minutes and uh, told her she was going to get arrested if she stays on the premises. I mean, getting worse and worse. And I think what it comes down to, I saw this short interview clip of Biden in 1986 saying, well, You know, this is the best investment we made into Israel, this 3 billion US dollars, right? If there weren't an Israel, uh, the US would have to invent in Israel to protect her interests in the region. So I think even even if this conflict were to miraculously come to an end at some point in our lifetimes, the US will always, you know, be a huge factor in in the destabilization essentially of the Middle East. So, yeah, it's... uh, tragic to watch it unfold. And of course, also, you know, the propaganda, the censorship, we know there's a full communications blackout. Again, um, it feels like people are kind of getting desensitized to the violence, um, kind of shutting off. Do you think this is something that is um, almost intentional in a way, Uh, you know, desensitize people enough on a conflict, and then maybe they'll just look the other way and not care enough to, that they'll just normalize that kids are getting blown up in Gaza every day, if schools and refugee camps are getting bombed. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I can speak for myself. So uh, when you are in front of so many atrocities and see people uh, killed, and then you have children coming up to you uh, when you are on the scene, when a bomb just landed on the house, killing everybody, at the exception of a child or a little girl, and she asks you, what have I done? I don't understand why my parents have been killed. They've done nothing. Um, what you have to do is, first of all, is something that will affect you all your life, and that is called PTSD. And... Secondly, you need at a certain moment to shut down to be able to survive and switch into a survival mode where you are not affected by your surrounding. And the only thing that creates a balance in you is to be able to channel what you see to other people so you share with them your experience. And when you share with other people your experience, you distribute in a way with your your, your article the same responsibility and the same feeling and the same weight of what you have seen to other people. To a certain point when you think you have become numb, and I've seen many of my colleagues throwing the camera in the middle of the street going to an airport that is bombarded and closed and where there is no plane and thinking they just want to flee and leave, but they go nowhere and then return the second day with a little bit more karma because they have no way out and they need to continue doing their job. So being confronted to so much atrocity, it makes you, it gives you the wrong feeling of being numb, but you're not. In your head, your head is working all the time. You always see these images. You live with these images. And the sense of injustice is overwhelming. So when you hear uh, people like um, uh, Joe Biden or uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken coming to Israel and say, I am coming as a Jew, you say what is this? I mean, he's speaking, that, who said that this is a religious war? It is a war for the injustice that these people are suffering for, from. We have seen in our business so much injustice in the world, so much killing, indiscriminated killing, that people just brush like Tony Blair, oh, I've killed one million Iraqi, and it was a mistake, and I'm sorry, and he gets away with it. Now, you can't be more unjust to allow people like Tony Blair or like George Bush to say, oh, we made a mistake on weapons of mass destruction. We went and invaded the country, and we destroyed it, and it's still not recovering. We killed a million Iraqis, and okay, well, we turned the page. I mean, who told you that the Iraqis are turning the page? Who told you that the Iraqis are not suffering? I'm saying that because I lived nine years in Iraq. In Afghanistan, you'd bomb the hell out of Afghanistan for 20 years to give back the power to the same Taliban. So all that makes us a journalist and war correspondent. Uh, we are human beings after all. But we see so much injustice that you have two choices. Either you create your own uh, blood and you work as an independent and then you speak your mind. And you can be sure that nobody is going to hire you again, or you go with the flow, and you write what the editor wants, and then you oppress even more uh, all your feelings because do you think people in the CNN, um, uh, BBC, Fox News, all the news, uh, Reuters, AFP, AP, UPI. They are not human beings, they don't see what's happening. Everybody sees what's happening. We all understand that among colleagues when we start talking, but then when you write, it depends who is controlling you. If you are free, you get hardly money to pay your bills. If you're not free, then you get a good salary and you are looked after because you are part of the club. It's a very difficult choice that I prefer to suffer myself and to be able to sleep and i need only two minutes to fall asleep or to have a lot of money and not being able to sleep and say where is my consciousness at least in front of the people that i have seen suffering and all the um diplomats who they who leave their jobs they start talking because they really need it for themselves not for the other they need to be clean they need to come clean with themselves they need to say the reality to say at least we have contributed after all this damn silence that we have been throughout the years and decade of our job and what's happening in gaza well look what obama said who is responsible for killing so many people in afghanistan he said the killing of the palestinian cannot be ignored now he's still not saying This is a massacre because, you know, the Jewish lobby is so strong and the Zionists are so powerful that you risk really uh, heavy consequences. But a person like me, I have the luck of accepting to live with minimum and then speak my mind. Well, it's not easy.
0: I have a huge amount of respect to you for that, by the way. Uh, Kind of why I left the mainstream journalism world as well. It's much more um gratifying for one to to be able to speak the truth and not feel oppressed by some editor in the newsroom well yara and i have
2: both lost our jobs due to our political views so please like subscribe donate <laughs> share do all of those things because now we're free but we're also very poor so please please help us please help the independent journalists but yes elijah thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and i'm gonna i'm gonna um message you again in in december and say are you ready for another episode (laughs) but thank you for being a regular guest would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you
1: well i have a blog and uh, they just type my name and they can subscribe that will be very helpful and um, i have my account on twitter where i say really what i want to say (laughs)
2: no. <laughs> i think we're all saying what we want to say on twitter now thank, <laughs> well, thank you everyone um please like subscribe and share to us and elijah we will be back on tuesday with kevork almasian sometime this week with scott ritter and sometimes this week with pepe escobar whenever he decides to show up so thanks again elijah thank you yara as always and we'll see you guys next time thank you very much thank you again